never know when something is going to happen. And when it does, everything changes at once. The corruption of Chris Miller. Two women who hate each other. Join together to protect themselves from a mad killer. He's in the library. He can't have locked all the windows. There must be some way out. The corruption of Chris Miller. Gene Seberg. Marisol. Barry Stokes. The corruption of Chris Miller. Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we're back again for another episode of the Beyond Nashi series of episodes. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Some Spanish horror that actually, I think, has uh, the least amount of Nashi in it possible. Right, but there but there is some. There's there's some Nashi connections. There's some connections. And certainly things that remind you of other Nashi films, if we want to stretch it that far. So. There are some things that remind me of a lot of films. <laughs> yeah, well, true, yeah. I think this movie... It's of a type. This is a film of a type. Well, it's not just that. I, I think that uh, this this film may have influenced some people if they ever got a chance to see it in the uh, in the 70s when it was playing mm-hmm. around. But well. yes. this is a rare and difficult film to see uh, until recently. Until now. Because... The movie we're covering tonight is from 1973. It's called The Corruption of Chris Miller. It's a fantastic thriller that I had only ever seen until recently in a crappy bootleg from a VHS tape. And uh, even in that horrendous visual way of seeing this thing, even though it looked like garbage, mm-hmm. it was still a stunning picture. And I talked about it incessantly <laughs> Mm-hmm. For yeah. a little while afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always heard you mention it. I'd never seen it before, so I guess I got lucky that I never had to, you know, every yeah. now I've gotten to see it in this new pristine uh, uh, presentation. Yes, we were very excited when Vinegar Syndrome announced that they were putting this movie out. Um, mm-hmm. They put it out widescreen. It is a beautiful looking print, I'm happy to say. And with a fair number of extras on the disc as well, interviews and all mm-hmm. that's uh, some some rather interesting background material. It is. Um, I will caution that the it is great. They have a hour long interview with the director 
but don't watch it if you're really hoping for a lot of background information on this film. It's very interesting for his life, you know, what's discussed there, but he does not discuss the corruption of Chris Miller. They mention it about once, and it's kind of mentioned as sort of like, almost like, you know, well, here's the here's the ghetto you were had to work in, unfortunately, <laughs> which is not really fair to the film, but it's unfortunately kind of the attitude that the guy that's interviewing him sort of takes is like, well, this is one of your lesser, one of the ones you're probably not as proud of, you know. So anyway, just throwing that out there, it's, it's, it's worth watching for the interview, but not... Not if you're wanting to find out uh, his thoughts on the film. Yeah, the uh, the director, Juan Antonio Bardem, had a very long career stretching back mm-hmm. to the 50s, both as a screenwriter and a director. And um, he did a couple of other films that would be considered thrillers, but in general, his career was very high-toned. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of very well-regarded movies. He won a number, a number of awards for both his scripting and for mm-hmm. his direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, kind of a gem amongst the... Uh, Spanish cinema world, mm-hmm. or in the in the Spanish cinema world, he's very well very well regarded. And um, this film, which is how we know him, because we yeah, haven't right. seen any yeah. of those other exactly, films. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he is. I mean, well, when we talk about the movie, I'll just I'll just preface by saying he shows a flair for. Everything that he does in this movie, it's the it's he has a sure hand, he has mm-hmm. a firm hand. Mm-hmm. He clearly knew what he was doing at every step, and there's uh, let's let's just say it's an it's an impressive feat. Uh, since I'm already on record as loving mm-hmm. this movie, let's just say that being able to see it on Blu-ray did not make me love it any less. <laughs> but uh, we'll get to that movie in a little while. We've got a few things to talk about first. One thing we should be uh, very happy to talk about, which is. As we record, the limited edition version of Mondo Macabro's release on Blu-ray of Beast of the Magic Sword has sold out. But fear not, folks, if you did not jump on the limited edition. The standard edition will be out uh, sometime before the, sometime around the end of the year, I'm assuming, which you'll be able to pick up from your, your any old retailer online, Amazon, or any other place. Uh, it will not have uh, the red case or the uh, the booklet that will be uh, included with the limited edition, but the disc will be the same, mm-hmm. which means uh-huh. it will have... The reason you want to buy it. <laughs> the film! No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, well, the film too, is but... the, the film is the main reason. But, mm-hmm. of course, Troy and I are uh, on that disc as well. We did a commentary track for Beast mm-hmm. and the Magic Sword that we are very proud of. And uh, we look forward to hearing what other people think mm. of our work. This is probably that. one we're going to get raked over the coals for, because all the others we've been so scared of, you know, it's like, you know, is anybody going <laughs> to like it? And this thing we're coming like, yeah, we we not we did a good job on this one. This is the one that people we are knocked this get. one out of the park. This is the one that they're they're, 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 they're going to kill us for. But it was very exciting to hear it kind of at the last minute before they uh, finished everything to start the sale of the limited edition on the film. It was exciting to learn that they realized that the film could be shown matted at 166, mm-hmm. and it actually works matted mm-hmm. at 166. And so the another extra little mm-hmm. perk on the Blu-ray is going to be the ability to see it unmatted at 133, the mm-hmm. Academy ratio, mm-hmm. but also be able to watch it at 166. They, yeah. They're including both ways of being able to watch the movie, which is incredibly exciting for aspect ratio geeks like me. <laughs> So. Yeah, and it's gonna look awesome too. And you know, the, oh, the print's gonna look great. So, and this is the yeah, this is a big one. I mean, this is this is a film that that has never gotten a really good release. Very few home video releases at all, you know. And yeah. so this is uh this is this is big for the nashy addicts out there. 
Which is, I guess, one of the reasons why it sold out. Yeah, obviously people people responded, so that's good. That's all good. There are other little pieces of news that we'll drop uh, near the end of the show, but one thing we wanted to get out of the way, which is a, a bit of extremely bad news, yes. um, to be honest. For those of you who have listened to the show for the past however many years, you will be aware of um, a man named Dan Fisher, a fellow we uh, refer to for years now as our man in the field. Mm-hmm. Dan Dan was a, a good friend of the show. He was the first person to really contact us, go out of his way to come and see us. He visited us down here in Tennessee on more than uh, more than one occasion. He came down at least twice to spend some time with us. And we got to know him and uh, got to love him. He was a contributor to the show. Uh, he, he recorded a few bits where he uh, went through the history of a number of different TV horror hosts those are those little bits are scattered throughout uh, the run of the show and the uh, mostly in I think the fourth and fifth years. Mm-hmm. I believe yeah, that sounds about there. right. Yeah, but uh, we also the first time he came down, uh, Troy interviewed him and kind of got his background as a Nashi fan and what brought him to Nashi and kind of just the the different things that he enjoys that mm-hmm. kind of dovetail with that. Um, that uh, you can you can still hear that. Of course, it's up as part of the feed in the episode we did it in. It's in the uh, 9.5 episode, the one where we uh, gave away a uh, DVD of Werewolf Shadow. Included in the, in the majority of that show is actually Troy's interview with Dan mm-hmm. uh, when he came down to visit us for the first time. Dan Dan has uh, has passed away. He passed away really unexpectedly, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we were a bit shocked to yeah. be contacted by his uh, brother. It, uh, it it appears that there was some, uh, some kind of problem with his intestines and an infection set in, yeah. and before it got caught, it was well past the point of no return, mm-hmm. and uh, he passed away on uh, October 6th mm-hmm. of this year. Yeah, he was uh, 54. Yeah. And yeah, and Dan was just one of the sweetest people you could ever meet, and just he was so helpful to us. I mean, I think Rod and I both, you know, would would yeah. acknowledge that he probably extended the life of our podcast <laughs> considerably <laughs> by because he would send us uh, send us so many. You know, he would hunt down Nashy films and send us uh, um, you know recordings of Nashy films wherever he could find them, really obscure stuff, and and just send us a lot of other stuff too. He'd always send us packages of things he had you know taped and found that we might be interested in, and. Well, we shared it. Well, he and I definitely shared a, an obsession with uh, the DC Universe animated films. Yeah. <laughs> we spent more than a, more than a little time talking mm. about those at length. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he did hilarious kind of little graphic things, you yeah. know, little mock ups and memes and things that he would do based on our show that always cracked us up. You know, he just had a great sense of humor. Uh, loved music, you know. He and I talked about even trying to collaborate on doing some music, and uh, I'm sorry we never got around to that. And we, I can't really give away the details on this other than just to say that one of the last contact, the last contact we had with Dan, he was helping us with a project that will be announced eventually. You know, but something yeah. else we were needing some research help with, and as as always, he was just right there with all kinds of information and 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 help there. So so, uh, you know, I will say it's hard to any any time put a positive on spin on anything like this, but I will say that you know Dan always talked about how his 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 particular love for Peter Cushing and his identification with Peter Cushing came about the fact that Dan had lost his wife Holly uh, who he loved very deeply and uh, he always um, understood Peter Cushing's of course you know uh, the grief and, yeah. and the love he had for his wife and Peter Cushing always talked about how in a way once his wife died he was in a way just waiting to be with her and I do think on a lot of it Dan was Dan did have deep uh, spiritual beliefs and I do believe that he he kind of felt the same way. 
with Holly. And so I guess that's one thing that kind of gives me a little comfort is I know that if Dan were here, he'd probably tell us that that was one thing that he, he was always believed deeply is that he would see her again. And, uh, I would just, I would just emphasize that for those of you who, uh, who heard him over the years on our show and knew him in that way, uh, you would have loved meeting him as well. And Mm -hmm. I think that one of the best things, one of the best measures that, uh, one can uh, take of a person's life is the amount that they're missed when mm-hmm. they're gone and mm-hmm. the influence that they had while they were here. Yeah. And uh, Dan, he was the first person to really reach out to us when we started doing this show, when we really kind of felt like we were huh, doing a show and shooting it out into the, out into the <laughs> right, void right. with, uh, you know, very little feedback. Uh, very quickly, he jumped and uh, made himself known let us know that he really enjoyed what we were doing, really was happy that we were doing it, and kind of in a lot of ways continued to give us uh, the kind of positive feedback that helped us and, of course, was just a good reflection of the kind of guy that he was. Absolutely. So um, I would not be able to speak as calmly about this now if I had not had a few weeks to process this. Yes. But let's just say that uh, his memory will live on as we continue to do this. There, There will be... Uh, more than a few times when I'm watching a Nashy Werewolf film from now on, and I'll be, you know, whether I want to or not, I'm going to be thinking about Dan Fisher. Yeah, same here. He uh, he called me and me and Rod and and him and uh, uh, Elena uh, from uh, Spanish Fear. You know, he called us all the Nashketeers, and uh, <laughs> yeah. so so in Dan's honor, I'll just say, as Dan always says to say, I always like to say, uh, one for all and all for Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, And uh, now I think we'll just take a quick break. uh, And we'll come back and we'll uh, discuss, up to a point, Mm -hmm. the corruption of Chris Miller. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize. I'm the host and creator. And I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now, we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now, I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. 
but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. of Chris Miller, 1973. Actually came out in May of 1973. And I have to say that um, this is one of the longest movies we've ever covered mm-hmm. on the show. Yes, yes, I know. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, it's an hour and 51 mm-hmm. minutes, mm-hmm. which is a bit longer than the length even listed on most websites when you go looking for it, which mm-hmm. makes me think that uh, most versions of the film that we've seen in bootleg format have been PAL VHS tapes, yeah. therefore sped up the, mm. the whole thing where the uh, 25 frames a second versus 24 frames a second adds up to a few minutes over the course of an entire film. Mm-hmm. So Right, because I haven't seen or heard of anybody talking about this any particular alternate cuts of this film. You know, no, not said. really. Although the Blu-ray that we were talking about earlier of this film that Vinegar Syndrome has put out does have the alternative, yes, there is an alternative Spanish ending, ending mm, which yes. is just the, the tail end of the film. Mm-hmm. That uh, is a nice little tag. By the way, folks, I want you to want you to know right right up front that we're not going to spoil this movie. This is a film much like the giallo genre. Uh, this probably fits pretty comfortably in the giallo genre, uh, and I'd say that we're not going to spoil this. We're going to talk about what happens in the movie up to a particular point, mm-hmm. and then we're going mm-hmm. to stop. And it's not going to be easy to do because there's so much we could talk about. There's <laughs> so, so much to not. talk about in this movie. Oh but we take God. our with great power. Podcasting power comes great, great responsibility, responsibility, and we're not going to we're not going to take that lightly. We're not going to spoil this film. So you will be able to listen to this. Only learn the broad outlines of the first hour or so of the movie, mm-hmm. and we will not be spoiling the last forty or so minutes of this picture because, well, first of all, what what we'll be talking about in this. Just hearing us talk about it ain't going to spoil a thing for you, but the things that would destroy kind of mm, yeah. <laughs> your, your, your ability to watch the film with a cold eye, mm-hmm. we're going to stay away from. So have no fear. Uh, we're going to talk about the movie for a while, but we're not going to spoil it. Uh, it's a rare thing for us to not spoil a movie, but mm-hmm. we are going to adhere to that. So yes. here we go. All right. Corruption of Chris Miller. First thing I'd like to uh, say right out of the box is that this is, I always suspected it was a beautiful film from the bootlegs, mm-hmm, but being able mm-hmm, to see it mm-hmm. in a crystal clear, yeah. high definition presentation, 
my God, this is a beautifully shot yes. picture. This is mm. very, very pretty. It's shot in Spain, of course, although the film is supposed to take mm. place mm. in in uh, rural England, mm. which uh, is... And, and as far as... I, actually, I think it was filmed in the Amazon rainforest to do the drift. <laughs> because of all the because rain? Because of all the friggin' rain. It, 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 does it rains rain incessantly. Constantly. Well, there's a, there's a part of me that wonders is, what, did they set it in England mm. and then have the... Spaniard's eye view of England. Of what England it always is. rains. It just always rains. <laughs> and let's face it, that's our view too, you know. <laughs> Pretty it there. much. But it's great. I love the point. At one point in the film, someone finally says it rains too much in this town. And I'm thinking, yes, thank you. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> thank <laughs> you, God, for somebody saying that. My God. I mean, there, there are several days in this movie that when it's not raining, but wow, there's almost always a rainstorm. <laughs> Uh, but of course, there being a rainstorm. Oh, it, I mean, it ties into the plot. So. Oh, it, well, yeah. that's one of the more interesting mm. things about mm-hmm. this is yeah. how it seems, mm. from a kind of a bird's eye view of mm. the entire story, that the killer, and boy, is there a killer, mm-hmm. seems keyed by mm. the rain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there only seems to be murders in this movie mm-hmm. during rainstorms. That's right, which is really kind of fascinating, but. Let's talk first uh, a little bit about a little bit mm-hmm. about the cast and the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to single out once again the uh, amazing cinematography. Before we go too far, a guy named uh, Juan Gelpi, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> he'd worked with this director several times. The director is Juan Antonio Bardem, which we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, and, I, and I do have to mention that, of course, with that last name, yes, mm-hmm. he is he is, of course, uh, the uncle of. Mm. Javier Bardem, who mm. you've seen in a dozen mm. different films, including Skyfall and God, how how many damn movies yeah. have we seen yeah. Javier oh, Bardem? Yeah, and we've seen his mother in uh, House of Psychotic Women. Exactly. So uh, these Spanish people with the Bardem last night, <laughs> they're they're everywhere. They've infected <laughs> cinema for the better. In my yes, opinion. exactly. But the cinematography is incredible in this movie. There's there are scenes, mm. especially in those days, oh, not just in the rainstorms, no. which are always beautifully shot. But in those bright sunny days mm-hmm. when they're you know there's a lot of they're they're riding horseback through uh, mm-hmm. the countryside, wow! I mean this could mm-hmm. be this could have been used as travelogue to advertise yeah. you know to to advertise for tourists. Well, let's just say this right now. I I one thing that makes this film kind of stand apart from virtually every other film that we've covered on this show, whether beyond Nash or Nashy, is I don't know that we can use our say our normal thing about how well um, we always have to throw in at some point. Well, considering the you know, budget limitations of this film, and, and oh, that's yeah. what thing. This feels to me like an A-list film. You know, now here here in the states, I'm guessing it probably played the grindhouse circuit, but this has not come off like a film that that was constricted by you know by being considered a B film or or, or budget. I mean, this really feels like a like they had time to set time this film and, up. Yeah, this movie feels like they had time and money, mm-hmm. and. Um, not that there's anything in the picture that would require some kind of massive no, amount of money, no, no. but it's clear that they had time, oh, man, which is thought. which is yeah. really a lot of yeah. money. I mean, the the and the time and thought that they put into not just so you said cinematography, but I, my eye was also drawn to appreciating the uh, the incredible set decoration and set designs throughout this film. There are so many t- things you on second viewing that are just neat little touches you notice. Yeah. Um, it, from the very very opening scene. Outside, there's just this outside the house where the first scene takes place. There's just this table that's got a whiskey bottle and some glasses out there where it's raining. That you know, very that, that obviously just recently some people are out there, yeah, imbibing, you know, and 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 just little touches like that that wouldn't be necessary except it adds something to what you see come up next. And uh, and uh, I, I, there's a lot of that in this film. 
Well, beside the excellent work by the director and the cinematographer, let's mm-hmm. single out the excellent script because, mm-hmm. of course, without an excellent blueprint, you can't build a good house. And man, mm-hmm. the blueprint for this, the script, is phenomenal. The guy who wrote the script is named Santiago Moncado. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right because I, he has all my respect. Uh, he's also res- he was responsible for a lot of scripts over the years including the story, although not the finished screenplay for All the Colors of the Dark. Mm. He wrote the screenplay and came up with the the story for Cutthroat's Nine. And we know what a tight script that is, too. Exactly. Uh, He also wrote the screenplay and came up with the story for The Bell from Hell. Oh, man, which is another one that we were were impressed by. Didn't we cover just recently, in fact? Uh, He also did a number of movies that I'm a big fan of, The Swamp of the Ravens, Voodoo Black Exorcist. Uh, but he was writing movies and television all the way up through the uh, late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. to the point where he was even he even wrote uh, Rest in Pieces, a little a little, <laughs> a little horror film uh, directed uh, in the 80s by uh, Jose Larraz, oh, yeah. one of my favorites of the Spanish horror cinema. Now I have to ask you, I noticed on his credits here, one I didn't know if you had encountered that I believe is called uh, Tarzan and the Brown Prince. Uh, or, of course, I'm wondering if that's just a jungle film renamed as a Tarzan film or if you're actually familiar with this. Uh, I'm not familiar with the movie. Well, I'm familiar with the title because how I mean, could I not? I know, I was about to say, that's got to be right in your wheelhouse. There. It is it's in my a, wheelhouse. It's a Steve Hawks, okay. It's a Steve Hawks film. <laughs> oh, boy. I have not seen it. Steve um, Hawks of, uh, of uh, Blood, Blood Freak uh, fame, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that says it all right there. <laughs> well, I, I have not seen Tarzan and the Brown Prince, and I do not know if uh, that was a script that uh, shows evidence of the fine qualities that we... Uh, uh, located within, uh-huh. say, all the colors of the dark You're or right. the corruption yeah. of Chris Miller. I would, but... I would be suspicious that it did not. But you know, we, we both, I'm sure, would would check it out if we get the chance. Well, let's just say that the director uh, made a couple of, uh, um, I'm sure, uh, illegally produced Tarzan films. <laughs> yeah. One in 1969, and and that one in '72. And mm-hmm. so I have the feeling there may have been a theme mm-hmm. for. Uh, I mean, he's the same, he's also the guy who did Swamp of the Ravens and Voodoo Black Exorcist. So at least I know I've seen movies. By by the director. I just don't know yeah. if the script for these Tarzan <laughs> movies held up worth a damn. <sighs> cool. Which, of course, is yet another little track I want to run no, down immediately course. and mm. check out. But yes, you're right. Very impressive script. And it's a very tight script. It's very well thought out. It's incredibly mm. twisty mm. and turny. Mm. There are several points at which you will think you know something and it turns out that you've been led down the garden path mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's an excellent movie in that way and it is the script that really brings mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. do you um now at the risk of of, of uh, incurring the wrath of Troy Howarth uh, could we could we call this <laughs> at least to say it has could we at least say it has some giallo elements in it uh? I think it has, well that's just it I'm not comfortable calling it a straight giallo no me either me either but I think uh, it has it has it giallo has, elements yeah, yeah. it's not like Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll no, which I no. would argue which I would argue definitely is a Spanish mm-hmm. giallo mm-hmm. but I will say that I do think that this is this definitely has more than a few elements mm-hmm. of the uh, of the giallo mm-hmm. uh, the things that were at that point very clear clearly established in the genre that you can see I mean Black Love Killer mm, there's sexual trauma exactly mm. so the, the, a lot of the the tropes that make the giallo stand out in mm. specific ways are here yeah. but there are a lot of other elements in oh, this yeah. movie that kind of tug it in, in, mm. in other directions mm. one giallo thing I noticed is the flash the kind of flashbacks through the film that take almost the entire film to really explain to you what you're seeing you know yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing that's a that's a, a very much a giallo 
conceit there. And to be honest, that type of uh, that that type of uh, slowly divulging information through mm-hmm. staggered flashback sequences is not just a Giallo thing. I mean, no, yeah, Giallo's yeah. really used it, mm-hmm. but it is something that that started turning up in thrillers in mm-hmm. the uh, late fifties, early seventies. I would argue that uh, the start of that might have actually been in some of the some of the more uh, edgy noirs mm-hmm. uh, in the fifties. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a good stylistic choice that carries over from one type of thriller to another over time. But uh, some might even say maybe at a certain point kind of got overused as geology or <laughs> there are films where it becomes a bit, uh, it becomes uh, almost mm. an excuse for staccato editing and mm. making it, making mm. certain sequences almost incomprehensible mm. uh, to the point of madness and yeah. certain, not necessarily lesser, but odder <laughs> geologs as the, as the decade of the seventies went along. Nevertheless, well used here. Mm-hmm. So, let's talk about the plot of this film just mm. a little bit. Uh, oh, 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 the we, cast, I guess. We're oh, I'm sorry. I'm cast sorry. I, 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 I left ahead of myself. You're right. Let's talk about the cast. Really, this is in a large way uh, a three-hander. There's yeah. only yeah. three actors that really get a significant amount of screen time. There are other mm. actors in the movie, mm. several of them actually, but mm. it really is the a set piece built for three actors. Mm. First, the legendary Gene Seberg. Uh, she made a lot of movies, starting, of course, uh, she made a lot of Euro- movies mm-hmm. in Europe after having gotten her start in America, of course. She's an American actress. Uh, she was, you know, her first films were with Otto Preminger. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she ended up in Breathless, yeah. which is, of course, kind of one of the touchstone films, yeah. you know, of exactly. the French, French New Wave. And from there on, her career went through many permutations. Mm-hmm. Some might say ups and downs. And they'd probably be right. Yeah, yeah. But she's always a strong presence. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten, for instance, that she's the lead actress in Paint Your Wagon. Yeah, I totally forgotten that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and she. I mean, she's very good in. I mean, she's very good in everything I've ever seen her in. Uh, there have been some comments in the past when speaking about this film that it seemed at times as if Miss Seberg. Uh, may have been embarrassed about her work in this film, but I really can't see it in her performance. I don't either. I don't think it came across at all. I thought it fit. Yeah. I think the way she played the character fit fit the character very well. She's very good in the role. I think it, I think that it uh, in the early 70s, um, and we'll discuss a little bit about uh, the tragedy of her life, uh, she only lived uh, about six years after this film was released and uh, died very young. But... In her performance, I see an actress really throwing herself into this role. Mm-hmm. This looks like to me the kind of role that a, an actress at her age at that time mm-hmm. would have been attempting to seek out something that is very well written mm-hmm. with a character with a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. Some sides, it would be very easy to view her at certain points as a villain. Yeah. Other times you view her very sympathetically. Mm-hmm. But and by the end of it... You really aren't sure exactly what to think about her anymore. The, yeah, the film leaves things unanswered. I mean, and, yeah. uh, and not in a frustrating way, but in an enticing way. I mean, yeah. it's, it's you know, its overall story has an arc and an ending, and all that. But you, but you definitely leave you wondering some things about her character. You know, like what she's done, what she's capable of. You know. well, I'd say that's true of both. The really, yes, I, yes, I agree too. By the I end of this too. movie, yeah, you have yeah questions. You've but, seen, yeah, you've seen both the good. You've, both, mm-hmm. you've seen both a lot of good and a lot of bad mm-hmm. elements of these characters. Mm-hmm. And it's really up to you which tack you would take mm-hmm. in thinking about them as a person, as a yeah. character. And it's really, it's really intriguing. And I think, like I say, that's the kind of thing that I think any actress would have really, 
wanted to get their hands on to sink mm-hmm. their teeth into because it's really such a juicy role. Both of the, well, all three of these lead roles in this mm-hmm. picture are that way. I think that they're phenomenal and what they bring to the table for an actor to dig into. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of great character stuff. The dialogue is sharp. Mm-hmm. All the, char- all the uh, motivations feel right, especially once you get everything on the table in the final few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, once again, we're not going to spoil. That's I'm, right. <laughs> yeah, I, almost, I almost leapt to something oh, there, and I, I stopped yeah, myself. Yeah, bite the tongue, bite the tongue. Yeah, bite my tongue. So, uh, let's see. So, Jean Seberg is the uh, the older actress. She's the stepmother of the younger actress. Our title character. Our title character, Miss Chris Miller. Mm-hmm. It was a young woman in her early 20s, played by a young woman in her early 20s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who uh, goes... Tight casting there. Yeah, I know, very strange casting. Um <clears throat> Uh, uh, she's credited in the film as Marisol. Now, Marisol is, uh, uh, as soon as you see that mm-hmm. and you have no idea what that is, you're, you're like, going to have to... <laughs> you're like, you assume their parents were not just lazy, that you know, they had, <laughs> she had a full name. She well, it, it, it caused me to dart, dart hither mm-hmm. to yon internet yeah. <laughs> to discover where, just what in the hell that is all where, about. Uh, yeah, where everything is made true. Everything's cleared up. Well, not everything is made true. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sometimes it just muddies shit up. Yep. Well, Marisol was an actress whose real name was Josefa, Josefa or Josefa, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm leaving you on your own. Josefa Flores Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Uh, later in her career, she went by Pepe Flores. In other words, her her actual last name, and I think mm-hmm. Pepe is kind of a, it's either a pet name or a shortening in a strange way of Josefa. I'm not sure. Yeah, it could be. And once again, I know I'm <laughs> mispronouncing that because how could I not be mispronouncing it? <laughs> But at any rate, she was actually known as a child star during the 60s as a, uh, a singer. Mm-hmm. She is a very talented singer and got uh, recruited into a singing career early in her life. And uh, in 1959, she was discovered by a film producer there in Spain who uh, saw her on television. Uh, she became a huge sensation in Spain and, in, and overseas and had a long string of hit records. She moved from just having a recording career into movies, often at first appearing in movies just to sing songs, of course, and then moved further into it and obviously did the work necessary to become an actual actress. I thought it was interesting that uh, she was so famous at a certain point in the early 60s that in 1963 she started a movie called Marisol Marisol Rumba a Rio, which is, translates as Marisol, Marisol is Bound for Rio, where she played twins in a plot that's kind of similar to uh, the Parent Trap, you know. So she's essentially she's essentially yeah. in the uh, the Haley Mills role. Wow, yeah, <laughs> and, and sang a bunch of songs in that one as well. And uh, then she was in a, a film called The New Cinderella with Robert Conrad in 1964, and of course sang a bunch of songs in that. Mel Ferrar directed her in another film uh, that translates as uh, under the title Prancer in 1965. So, as I say, this woman had a real career. Mm-hmm. So, by the time she's in into the 1970s, as she's in her early 20s, she's considered a big get mm-hmm. to be in this movie, just as Gene Seberg is. Mm-hmm. Remember, I mean, Gene Seberg won numerous awards yeah. for, for oh, yeah. prizes for acting, and it turns out so did Marisol. Best Actress Prize uh, for her role in uh, Los Dias del Pasos, which is called The Bygone Days. She was not a slouch. Yeah. And seeing this movie, you ex- expect that she mm-hmm. obviously has mm-hmm. talent. She's very good on the screen. But then you see her list of credits. You see mm-hmm. her background. You see how clearly she worked very hard in her in her career. 
And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> so already just yeah. with the two female leads, you've got mm-hmm. a pair of people who are really good at what they're doing and are dedicated actors. Now, there is one male lead, a lot of male characters mm-hmm. in the movie, but mm-hmm. only one guy who has a whole lot of screen time, and that's mm-hmm. Barry Stokes. Yes. British actor Barry Stokes. As I said earlier, this film, although shot in Spain, takes mm-hmm. place in the mm-hmm. English countryside. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to note <laughs> that. Uh, Gene Seberg sounds like an expatriate American. Mm-hmm. Marisol sounds like a woman with a really interesting accent. Never, never, uh, never. Uh, her accent never gets in the way of anything, mm-hmm. but she does pass pretty well as someone who's a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. And it is her voice. This was yeah, recorded. Right. This was recorded with uh, their own voices. Mm-hmm. And Barry Stokes, definitely British. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, boy, yeah. has he got a British accent. <laughs> so, uh, Barry Stokes, uh, his career. Very interesting. The first place I know of him that I saw him was in uh, Norman J. Warren's film, Prey. Same here. Uh, and I would just like to point out, for those of you interested, that uh, he appears quite nude in this movie, and he appeared quite nude in Prey. So, yeah. if you mm-hmm. want to see Barry Stokes nude... And uh, in Prey, he also was living with two other women. <laughs> this is true. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to think... Yeah. It's very much a similar kind of sort of dynamic in the way that he sort of you know intrudes intrudes upon their lives and and then yeah and then kind of becomes a catalyst for change shall we say so prey has a prey has kind of a soft spot for me because it was one of the early like mom pa video store acquisitions i you know i rented rented, uh you know not knowing really anything about it other than that it it looks kind of cool you know and so uh it's yeah it's a sci-fi horror film and uh uh, yeah, I rented it from a, from a video store, and uh, and those glory those old, old VHS days. So yeah, I've always had kind of a soft spot for that one. Well, what's weird is as good as he is in this, I would have thought that he would have been in a lot more movies. But it Me seems too. like most of his yeah. career was on television, on British mm-hmm. television. Mm-hmm. You know, episode you know episodes of The Intruder, uh, Tom Brown School Days, an episode of Doom Watch, mm-hmm. uh, just a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of British television, a few movies as well. But yeah, you're right. There is a part of me that wonders about prey mm-hmm. and the similarities of that <laughs> dynamic between mm-hmm. two women who live yeah. in an isolated yeah. country house, and Barry Stokes playing a character that kind of interrupts mm-hmm. that uh, that quiet life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being, you know, Corruption. Chris Miller was 73. Prey was 77. Yeah, so it's you not had not hard to grow a little. Yeah. yeah, it's not impossible to think that one may have influenced the other. <laughs> I don't. No. Could be, could be. Love to find out. But in this situation, you basically have three three people that the camera loves. I mean, they all three yeah. have, they all three have great screen presence, and they all three look great together. Well, what's weird to me about Barry Stokes is he seems to have uh, in the mid '80s retired from acting yeah. completely. Yeah. His last his last picture was Enemy Mine. Enemy Mine, yeah, of all things. <laughs> How strange. It is very strange. At any rate, yeah, they're all excellent in this movie. Yeah. And so, with the introduction of, I guess I, I thought it was funny, the introduction of uh, Barry Stokes' character. Now, this is the this is the classic of uh, you know the the rooster into the you know upsetting the <laughs> upsetting the hen house. Yes, this that is we've true. seen millions of times in so many different films, like House of Psychotic Women. You know, several yeah. Paul Nashie films we've seen this in, very true, and many other films. Uh, but I, I especially got a kick out of the fact that not only is his name Barney, but he is first discovered. In the barn, <laughs> it's like as if they needed to put any more of a finer point on what they're doing here. <laughs> Who are you? What are you doing here? I don't want tramps around my house. Pack up your things and get out of here. I said, get out. Shh. 
Yeah. I like to take my time waking up. If you don't leave immediately, I'll call my husband. What are you so mad about? I haven't done any damage. Look, I got lost in the rain last night. It was late and I didn't want to bother anybody. Do I have to call the police? First you're going to call the husband. Now the first. What's up? Don't you trust your husband anymore? Okay. My name's Barney Webster. Pleased to meet you. I'll give you five minutes. So as we mentioned, Ruth is the stepmom of Chris. And what's happened with the absent father is he has deserted the family. About a year before. Mm-hmm. Chris has obviously been either under some institutional care or there's the threats of putting her under some institutional care. She's had... Well, yeah, if you could... If you, and on the DVD, I mean, on this Blu-ray, you can. If you pause the letter <laughs> yeah. that they get, it does appear that she was under institutional care for a while. Mm-hmm. And they're still occasionally checking in with her, but mm-hmm. uh, she's been on... You know, she's mm-hmm. not hospitalized anymore, mm-hmm. so... So we pick up pretty quick that there is some strange dynamics in the relationship between Chris and Ruth. Um, Ruth obviously harbors serious resentment towards the the absent husband. Chris believes that the only reason he's the father is staying away is because of Ruth. Uh, Chris keeps believing that the father will come for her, and she believes that Ruth has ulterior motives. At least doesn't let her is not allowing her to see communications from her father. At one point in the film, Chris even says. When they're later telling Barney, when he asks them what they do around the house, she says nothing. She, Chris says, she, we just spy on each other all the time, which, as you see, they do. They're just always kind of hovering around each other, sort yeah. of watching each other's motions. That's really what these poor women have to do all day is just to distrust each other and, and spy on one another. Oh, we should state up front, actually, that the movie doesn't start introducing us to these characters until after the credit sequence. And That's before, true. There's a pre-credit yes. sequence yes. that sets up that this movie is not screwing around. Right. The opening segment of this movie introduces us to a woman that we learn more about later on mm-hmm. through through uh, newspaper uh, mm-hmm. newspaper stories that are presented and kind of the the talk on mm-hmm. uh, the new, the uh, local news and television uh, this this woman who is uh, having a fight with uh, a lover who she's had in her house for a couple mm-hmm. of weeks and is now ready to be done with mm-hmm. and is shooing this man out of the house before her husband returns mm-hmm. who's apparently been away for a while and this fellow, whose face we never see in this segment, we see him dressed up in a rather elaborate Charlie Chaplin outfit mm-hmm. and trying to mime mm-hmm. Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin's little tramp character very, you know, as effectively mm-hmm. as he can, which only seems to irritate this woman yeah. even, mer- even more until uh, things kind of get out of hand. Well, they get out of hand really quickly. And the man dressed up as Charlie Chaplin murders this mm-hmm. middle-aged woman. Mm-hmm. And then... Runs away into the mm-hmm. in, runs away into the rainstorm that's going on. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, pretty amazing opening sequence, and yeah. uh, and right off the bat we have a little reference, a little uh, connection to the Nashi verse. This is Perla Crystal. Yes, it is. Uh, who was our famous mad scientist of the Chemotrodes, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the shades wearing mad scientist uh, from Fury of the Wolfman. She was also in the awful Doctor Orloff. Yes, and Doctor Orloff's monster, and White Comanche. And it's interesting because even though her character, you know, she was pretty highly built in the, in the credits and her character's killed off immediately. But as you said, her character continues to be a presence throughout the film. Correct. Because she ter- it turns out that the character she plays 
was a uh, a famous, if kind of past her expiration mm-hmm. date, singer mm-hmm. in uh, in the in the the story as written, mm-hmm. who uh, whose whose murder is national news. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the talk of national news, both newspapers and on, <clears throat> on uh, mm-hmm. the uh, nightly news uh, programs for the entirety of the run of this film, mm-hmm. which takes place over the course of several weeks. Yeah, and how weird is this whole opening sequence? I mean, how strange are some of the motifs out there, some of yeah. the things it does. For instance, when she gets out of bed, why does she whistle for him like she's whistling for a dog? Isn't that the weirdest it's thing? It's very strange. That's never explained. You mentioned, you said it perfectly. You said she's shooting him out of the house, literally, and we see her dog outside chained up. Right. And at first, for a minute, I thought she was whistling for the dog, but then you realize, no, no she's, she but she, they have, it's obviously some little, it seems like some sort of weird little shtick they've created. Yeah. But again, just one of those nice little touches that don't know what it means, but it's very strange. But I, I, like I say, it's so interesting because from the dialogue, it's clear the man has been living with her and been her mm-hmm. lover for mm-hmm. about almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. And the reason she's getting rid of him is she does seem to have gotten mm-hmm. tired of him for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And the husband's on the way back, mm-hmm. so got to get mm-hmm. you know got to get rid of the boy toy. Yeah. And it's really fascinating just how much and how uh, shaded the relationship between the two of them is with dialogue only coming from one of the yeah. actors yeah. and not even being able to see mm. the actual face of the other one. It's yeah. all the dialogue and mm. the acting of Pearl of Crystal mm. and this really sharp script. And how, and speaking of the sharp script, how brilliant is it that the killer is disguised as a tramp and then we're immediately introduced to Barney, Barry Stokes, who is a literal tramp, yeah. you know, really, because getting, going, getting, off, sleep, getting off a train, living in some people, you know, crashing in people's barns, you yeah. know, and so that whole scene is almost, that whole opening scene is almost like a burlesque, over-the-top version of what we're about to see slowly play out over the whole rest of the film. In a strange and, way. And it sets up, your, you mentioned her husband being gone, it kind of sets up the, another one of the underlying themes this whole film are people living in isolation. You know, everybody lives in isolation in yeah. this film. Even people who live together are in isolation still from each other. It's... There's so many themes built into this, mm. and there's so many things I would love to talk about, but I don't want to spoil. Oh, this no, movie I know, I know, we cannot, we cannot say. Uh, I don't want to spoil the movie for you, mm. folks. Go see mm-hmm. the corruption of Chris Miller mm. by whatever means you can. Mm. It's a good Blu-ray, though. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is very nice. <laughs> Nevertheless, so what we have, we have this setup where we have these three characters. So Barry Stokes' character, and all these little things that are built into this. First of all, we see him when he gets off the train in, near the town where our two main female characters live. Mm-hmm. He's referencing something that is clearly directing him somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't come back. You don't mm-hmm. find out the significance of what he's looking at until the very end of the film. And I always admire films that were made at this time when they had no guarantee of how many of ever being seen again or how many times they would be seen by repeatedly by the same viewers. And what I'm getting at is, you know, in these days before video to put little details in there that an audience, you've got to trust the audience to be paying serious, serious attention to pop in little details that you are not going to reference again until all the way, you know, an hour and a half later in the film because, you know, you at that point, you wouldn't have assumed these people were going to turn around and walk back in the theater the next day and see it a second time or True. or maybe never see it again. Or even get the chance yes, to, exactly. depending on how long it yeah. played. Yeah. And you have now brought up one of the many things that I made little notes mm-hmm. that I wanted to speak about, and mm-hmm. that is it precisely. Mm-hmm. Folks, we live in wondrous times. Mm-hmm. We can, almost at the click of a button, mm-hmm. see almost any movie, almost mm-hmm. any movie, that we have a hankering to see within yeah. reason. 
It's a wondrous time. Mm. It's a fantabulous time. But I want to inform you of something right now, especially the younger listeners. We used to watch films differently. Yeah, yeah. And I don't just mean that we used to watch more films in a group setting in a Mm. theater. Mm. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I'm talking about. It's what Troy was just referencing. And this is not uh, old man on the porch screaming out my lawn kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. This is just an observation. And I'm not saying it's better or worse. Yeah, it's just, I'm yeah, just saying right. that it's different. Right. And what that means is, yes, Troy, what you just referenced is there are a number of things embedded in this film that are small, mm-hmm. subtle, and then they have payoffs later in the picture. But you have to have been paying attention. Mm-hmm. Long ago, when the way when this film came out in '73, the only way you saw a movie was in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Seeing a movie in a movie theater concentrates the mind. Mm-hmm. You're in a yeah. darkened room. Yeah. There are no other distractions except the other patrons. Hopefully, also paying attention to the movie screen, and therefore the the attention paid was deeper, mm-hmm. and it sucked in more detail. It allowed you to absorb more mm-hmm. of what was happening. And then those payoffs happened naturally with the way films were viewed at that time. These days, most of us are going to never get to see The Corruption of Chris Miller or a similar film from that period on the big screen. Outside of a retrospective screening or uh, a a one-off someplace at an art house cinema or uh, something of that nature, the chances of seeing these films from that time period on a big screen the way they were meant to they're few and far between. It yeah. happens, yeah. but it's not often. Right. So, although we do, and some people even younger than us do watch movies with the intent and the intensity that I'm speaking about, hmm. not everyone does. But, of course, the trade-off, and that's why I say it's not better or worse, it's just mm-hmm. different. The trade-off is that now we have the, the ability yeah. to, when that film does something to us, yeah. to go, you know, I'm going to watch that again tomorrow night. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go back, yeah. I'm going to watch this sucker again, mm-hmm. and see all those little pieces. Because your mm-hmm. brain might not catch all of yeah. necessarily, because oh, you were distracted for a minute because you reached down oh, to, sure. grab your, to grab yeah. your drink. Or yeah. whatever it may have been. There was a sound mm-hmm. outside. Whatever mm-hmm. it may have been. But the trade-off is that now... Mm-hmm. It's the click of a button to watch the thing again. Yeah, or or just the cases where, as often happens with me, with my crazy life, and I know it just with you too, is, is we don't always get to watch a movie from start to finish uninterrupted. Sometimes sure. we have to watch part of it one night and, and part of it next night. And so on that first time viewing, you might something that is a linear thread might not you might not notice until you get to go back and watch it the second time as a full movie. You know, something that's meant to be a reference to something else later in the film might because you had to break that viewing experience up. You might not totally catch the first time around. And that's the thing about this movie. This film rewards close attention. Yes. This film rewards Mm -hmm. looking Mm -hmm. and staying focused. Mm -hmm. And um, like I say, it's not better or worse. This isn't isn't old man lunacy. This is just expressing that we Mm -hmm. used to watch films in a different way. Absolutely, yeah. But it's still possible to watch them that way. Mm -hmm. It just takes more effort, sadly. Yeah, it does. And it's unfortunately the ease with which we can watch films now that makes it harder to mm. have that focus. Yeah, and the hard, and it's harder to sit in a in a cinema full a room cinema full of people and, and count on them all being dialed into the film like this you are. True. This you is know? true. But that's I would say that's always been true. That's well there is to to a certain yeah, I'm not saying that the 
you know that that you, you know the old grindhouse audiences in the seventies <laughs> that you go in and wouldn't be some distractions in there. You know, if like people right. knifing each other and that sort of oh, thing. Oh yeah, so, that you know, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. People slurping orange juice yeah, and screaming yeah. in right. obscenities. Who knows right. what's <laughs> You know. I ever reach a ripe old age and find women a drag. I'm going to have a car like this. With a uniform chauffeur. If you think you can dominate me, you're very much mistaken. Oh, you've already dominated me. I'll do anything you want me to. I have enough problems now. You have to leave. Nobody ever comes around here. Who's going to find out? Maybe I can help you out with a few things. initial murder, pre-credit sequence murder, the movie has kind of announced itself as what it is. Mm -hmm. This is not just a drama, folks. Mm -hmm. There's a murderer lurking around. And that thread remains throughout the movie. We have the news reports. We have the fact that the cops are, are looking for this murderer throughout the countryside. We get more information about the fact that that was not the first murder. As a matter of fact, this appears to be a series of murders, and the police are uh, telling people we think that it may be the same killer Mm -hmm. doing these different murders over the past several months. Mm -hmm. So, we know we got a murderer around, and the movie keeps kind of hinting around that since these murders are not all that distant from where these two women live, Mm -hmm. everybody we see... In the little town that they live near, mm-hmm. and in that house, are suspects. Mm-hmm. And the movie has already deeply hinted, hey, could mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. Barney. Mm-hmm. Certainly could be. Mm-hmm. But then as the movie goes on and we learn the depth mm-hmm. and the detail of just how mentally unstable uh chris miller's character is chris chris's yeah, character right, is right. yeah you begin to think well she's awfully stabby <laughs> yeah yeah and and you and now, and you do have the question you know does, does she has she has she killed before you know right or at least seriously attacked a man, a man before because right. yeah because yeah. you do have to do something to get mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. placed into a, a, a some kind of uh mm-hmm. commitment shall we say mm-hmm. so there's that and then the more we learn about uh, the rather twisted view of how Ruth, Gene Seberg's character's mm-hmm. vision of what she's doing there, living in that house mm-hmm. after her husband has left her with her stepdaughter. Yeah. The more you learn about her, and we should, I think we should discuss that now. Yeah. What uh, Ruth's character says outright, says specifically, actually says, mm-hmm. not to the, the Chris character, but to the Barney character. Mm-hmm. 
what's the Barney character actually is. Yeah. The yeah. rooster. The rooster. <laughs> rooster. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm trying to talk around certain things because yeah, I think it's yeah. best to let some of these details be yeah. discovered as you watch the film. Mm-hmm. But she actually does say that she is doing something to. She's doing things to Chris as a warped revenge yeah. on yeah. her father. Yeah. Because what she hopes, even though she keeps telling mm. Chris that her father's never going to come back, that she needs to understand that, she needs to accept it. Your father's mm. not returning. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, starts you, makes you start to think that maybe she mm. murdered the father, and that's how she's so certain that the father's never going to yeah, return. Yeah, there is. Well, that's... A, yeah. But it does appear that one of the ways, and this is intriguing, one of the mm. ways in which she may feel that she's going out of her way to corrupt Chris is Chris has a problem during rainstorms, mm-hmm. which, of course, of which they're a hell of a lot. Which they're a hell of a lot. <laughs> yeah. But by, by the way, of course, that should ring a bell for you considering the yeah. rainstorm murder problem. <laughs> yeah. She has a problem. During rainstorms, Chris freaks out. Mm-hmm. And when she does, she has these horrible nightmares, mm-hmm. the, and she, she freaks out, and she calls out for Ruth. She has to have mm-hmm. someone in the room with her. She's mm-hmm. just losing her mind. Mm-hmm. And... Ruth is taking advantage of this and has initiated a lesbian relationship between the two of them. Mm-hmm. This seems to be what she considers to be a corruption mm-hmm. of Chris mm-hmm. Miller mm-hmm. in a way that will affect, in some terrible way, the father if he ever returns. Yeah. Which, of course, makes you think, did she kill the father? Yeah. It's, but it's, if she, killed the, if she yeah. killed the father and she's using this to justify... Initiating a bisexual relationship with this with this girl or a sexual relationship with this girl, but then we very much see that Ruth is obviously bisexual because yeah. well, not only was she married to the father character, but she, she certainly is happy to sleep with uh, the Barney character yeah. as well. But then is she also keeping Barney there for another purpose because right. she sure doesn't, which would be a further corruption of Chris. Right. right. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of, yeah, she does make it clear mm-hmm. to Barney, especially mm-hmm. a little bit later in the film mm-hmm. that there's a reason he's there. And mm-hmm. he is, he seems to be trying to renege on that, which is that he is supposed to seduce mm-hmm. Chris. Well, I think that on one level, that's what she's thinking. But I also thought on one level, is she hoping that Chris will do, is there hoping something worse will happen? Why does she send Barney up there to take yeah. care of Chris when Chris, when Chris is, when it's raining? Hey, it's Chris's freak out time. Hey, Barney, won't you go up there and like spend and a little time with, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course to, to, to Barry's ear, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. but to Barney's ears, you know, that could very easily be, oh, okay, so she wants me to, she yeah. wants me to sleep I, with her steps, her stepdaughter. <laughs> but, to the viewer, it's like well, we've already seen. It could, it could be that. It yeah. could be that, or it could be yeah. that she wants uh, mm. she wants her stepdaughter to get all stabby stabby on yeah. you, and yeah. then she's a murderer, and then there you go. And then she gets to be, and then she has to go back and be institutionalized again. And, right, and, right, and, right. You know, so yeah. So there are a lot of things, and it's mm-hmm. very well written. It's very it well played, and mm-hmm. it is wonderfully suspenseful. Mm-hmm. It is a great combination of suspense and mystery. Mm-hmm. Coupled with some pretty incredible violence. Yeah, um, yeah. This is 1973, and so the the things that could be gotten away with at the time mm-hmm. uh, are taken advantage of in some in some intriguing ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you have two beautiful women. Mm-hmm. You got a really good looking guy. Mm-hmm. You got uh, sexual shenanigans. Mm-hmm. You got. Uh, 
You got shaded motivations. You got downright questionable motivation yeah. motivations, and you've got what looks to be at a certain point the burgeoning emotional distinction of uh, possible actual romantic feelings from the Barney character mm-hmm. for the Chris character. Mm-hmm. It becomes it's never really a triangle because yeah, it seems clear really. that Ruth, you know, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be happy to have had the boy toy for a night or two, but yeah. is also using him for other purposes. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting film. What did you think? This being the first time you've seen the film. I, of course, had seen it before. Mm-hmm. But this Blu-ray mm-hmm. viewing is the first time you'd ever seen it. Yeah. I, was, I was curious. Um, at what point in the story did you realize how many balls were in the air? In other words, mm-hmm. there comes a point where you're not sure of Anybody's oh, yeah. motivations and intent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what are doing. Some of the things that are driving possibly mm-hmm. what some characters are doing. Mm-hmm. But then, honestly, yeah. by the end of the picture, there's one character you've been misreading completely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's. Um, I mean, I don't remember a specific scene or not, but I definitely felt that. I definitely think the way that the nuances of the characters worked on me as it went you know, definitely started to subvert my expectations of what I thought of them the first, you know, you, and you yeah. get to the point where you're not sure about any of them, but in a good way, not because the performances or the writing oh, are no, uneven, no, no. Yeah. but because it's just, you're realizing more and more layers to these characters, you know, and, 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 and starting to see more and more possible ulterior motives of who's playing who kind of thing. Right. Well, now, yeah, we should say this is, I love the giallo genre, which mm-hmm. this is, you know, this mm-hmm. is kind of, this kind of runs parallel to mm-hmm. as a film. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things about giallos is there are times when a giallo can feel sloppy, still yeah. effective, but yeah. sloppy. Mm-hmm. There is nothing sloppy about this movie. It is incredibly sure-footed. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. plot point is well delineated. Mm-hmm. Each twist and turn is clear. And while shocking, not the mm-hmm. kind of shock that makes you wonder, what the hell am I watching? It makes mm-hmm. you... It makes it kind of it kind of gives you that blissful cinematic ex- explosion of joy mm-hmm. that the that the movie was able to pull something yeah. like this on you, mm-hmm. and it does that several times. And of course, in its final half hour, it does it about three or four times. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we're not gonna spoil no, this we're movie. Not. We're not. We are not going to spoil this movie. There might be a couple of things I won't mention here, but there might be might be a couple of things that if you're really hard on. Films retaining, like, you know, uh, as far as just an airtight logic in terms of how much you're willing to accept some coincidences or some implausibilities that, that but those are almost a part of almost any thriller, any thriller mystery. I yeah. mean, you're just almost always going to have a couple of things there that, you know, so unless you're just one of those people, you know, if you're that airtight about some things and you, you know, then, then you're probably going to hardly ever be well, pleased then, with films then, of this yeah, then, genre. Then you're you're, you're going to need you know. to stay away from Agatha Christie movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not going to read any yeah. Agatha Christie books. You're mm-hmm. also going to have to stay away from a large subsection mm-hmm. of, of mystery mystery mm-hmm. novels. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we all know that sometimes the giallos don't necessarily always play fair. No. I do feel like this film really does, and all which, you know, it, yes. it, it does a good job of doing that. I and think. you've gotten to one of the my mm-hmm. final points that I wanted to make mm. about the the way this film is structured. Mm. This movie does not lie to you. Yeah. Not once does it present something that mm. you then have to forget about yeah. later on mm. for the film to work. Mm-hmm. Everything it lays out to you pays off. Even mm. small 
things that you would have thought would be inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the movie does this repeatedly throughout its runtime, not just in the mm-hmm. end and not mm-hmm. even just in the third act. There is a point past which you you have had the movie demonstrate its cleverness and its willingness mm-hmm. to bring you along gradually with small details and just one little comment here and there that pays off, say, five minutes later. Mm-hmm. That it, it, it establishes a trust as it goes along inside the viewer because this movie is playing fair with you. It is not mm-hmm. hiding things right. that are necessary for you to understand what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. What it's doing is it's this it's keeping information back from you because the characters in the story are hiding this information. Not because the film is hiding it so that it can surprise the viewer, but because there is a reason the characters are themselves yeah. hiding the information that then eventually gets revealed. Right. This is, to me, the best kind of thriller writing, the mm-hmm. best kind of mystery writing. Yeah. Because, of course, in a mystery, the writer yeah. has to hide things yeah. that are slowly revealed. That's mm-hmm. the joy of reading a mystery or yeah. even watching a mystery. But as soon as a viewer mm-hmm. or a reader feels that they've been cheated because they were lied to in some way, yeah. their information was presented that then doesn't really work, Mm-hmm. Uh, Giallos are famous for this kind of stuff. Yes, he is here. <laughs> Even Giallos that I love, oh yeah, oh yeah, are famous. I mean, yeah. I, there's there's my one of my favorite one of my favorite things is is uh, the movie we've talked about on this podcast many times, Eyeball. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Which at a certain point mm-hmm. we learned that there's a character without an eye. Yeah. <laughs> and there is at no point in the film which we when we've seen this character for over an hour and a half at this point. Yeah. And there's no indication that this person has a glass eye. Exactly. And it, it becomes that thing where you're willing to accept it's it because like, the film okay, is a load yeah. of, the film's a load of so fun. Much fun but, yeah. but come on, that, movie, that means the movie was lying to us the whole time. This movie was just lying to us. Well, Corruption of Chris Miller is not lying to you. There's no. nothing in this movie that is a lie. Yeah. Things are hidden because the characters are hiding them, not because mm-hmm. the film is. Right. Okay, so a couple more uh, kind of behind the scenes sort of thing that I want to mention especially concerning the cast uh, I do want to point out a couple more faces from the Nashiverse that are in this film small roles because as we've said really our trio is our yeah. main characters but in the role of the commissioner who again you know we don't see a whole lot of but his scenes are good um, is played by a man called Gerard and I don't know if it's Tichi or Taichi I'm not sure I think it's, it's Tichi Tichi but I'm not positive. probably Tichi um, but we have seen him before uh, in um, The Hanging Woman and he oh, yeah. Yeah. he was also in pieces, and he was in <laughs> yeah of course which you know yes you know we, we, any we you never have pieces, any yeah. connection pieces going he is in uh, Beast and the Magic Sword which is coming out soon yes. on on Blu-ray on Blu-ray from Mondo yes uh, some other films genre films people uh, might be uh, familiar with uh, he was in the Blanchville Monster the Blanchville Monsters uh, Justine he was in Hatchet for the Honeymoon oh yeah. And Mystery on Monster Island, which someday we may see just because it does have Nashi. No, because Nashi is in it, even if not very much. Well, Peter Cushing's got And Cushing is in it. I mean, let's, yeah. you know, so watch that. And also in Amando Diosario's The Sea Serpent, he's in. Yes. And uh, another actor who uh, plays a very important part in a scene we're going to discuss here in a moment. He plays the sort of father of the a family uh, that's uh, actually, actually the only intact family in this whole film. Yeah. Um, for a moment, anyway. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> for, a he, few, for about two scenes. He plays the father, and we've seen him. It was a very familiar face. It's good to see him again. We've seen him on the show in films such as White Comanche. He was in Curse of the Devil, uh, The Devil's Possessed, A Dragonfly for Each Corpse, The Cantabrians, and Howl of the Devil. And his name is Mariano Vidal Molina. 
And yeah, so he's the, he's the one he's that the has father, the most. Yeah. He has the most Nashy connections. Oh yeah, yeah. and he plays the uh, the father, the uh, the farmer, the farmer father. Who, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who uh, yeah, he has a, a wife, uh, a daughter, and a son. Mm-hmm. Uh, two. I'm sorry, two, two sons. Dogs, even, yeah. even the, two sons. Two sons. Yeah, two sons. The the older mm-hmm. one and the mm-hmm. younger one. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that particular family and their mm-hmm. their little isolated farm, mm-hmm. there's a lot to recommend this picture. To any viewer. If you've mm-hmm. never seen this movie, of course, it's very clear that we think that you should see it. Um, and one of the more interesting aspects of this is this film is at times inter- interestingly and unexpectedly violent. Mm-hmm. It starts with a murder, and then there is violence that's kind of sprinkled throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But there are really kind of three set pieces of violence mm-hmm. that are, well, each one of them in its own way is standout. There's the opening murder. And then there is this central murder, and then there is a, uh, shall we say, rather cinematically impressive murder at the end of the movie, which we are not going to discuss. But this, the murder in the middle of the movie is going to be the last detail that we're really mm-hmm. going to discuss, which mm-hmm. is the murder of this small mm-hmm. family, this, this farmer's family. During a rainstorm, once mm-hmm. again, the movie, very intelligently at this point, is giving us more detail. The some of the detail is always obscured because we don't see the killer's face much as we didn't in the initial murder scene. Right. Uh, through news reports and newspaper uh, clippings, we're learning bits of information that the police are willing to divulge. And so during this uh, during this sequence, we see the killer put on a, a rain slicker, complete mm-hmm. with a hood, mm-hmm. uh, pull a uh, pair of pantyhose over their face mm-hmm. so that their features are obscured when they're not in shadow. Uh, once again, the cinematography here is fantastic. Oh yeah, and we see this. Uh, we see the killer uh, go through the barn of this family, pick up a scythe, mm-hmm. uh, one of those handheld uh, C curved scythes that we we puzzled we puzzled over <laughs> when we saw it in Horror Rises from the Tomb. It's the same that same <laughs> yeah. kind of implement. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What the hell do we call that exactly, other than a mm-hmm. scythe? Anyway, mm-hmm. so uh, this set piece in the center of it plays very much like uh, an outtake from one of the best directed slasher films you've never seen. Yeah. Uh, in 1973, this sequence in this movie, not the rest of the movie, mm-hmm. but in this sequence where this killer very effectively and brutally murders this family with this scythe, invades the home and mm-hmm. kills everyone, is incredibly well filmed. Yeah. It is, once again... Sure-footed. Yeah. There is never a moment when you don't know what's happening and how it's happening and are kind of dreading and fearing what you're about to see. And it is very well handled. The lead-in to it involving the younger child seeing the killer outside in the rain under a, under a, one of the lights hanging off the barn leading up to the final sequence is mesmerizing, smartly written, and brutal as all hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, this sequence, if it had been in a mediocre slasher film in, say, 1983, mm-hmm. it would have been the best thing in the movie. Yeah, yeah, no question. As it stands, it's the most shocking moment mm-hmm. in this film until the end. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why it was structured this way. I think that why, this is why the filmmaker shot this so effectively and so fluidly. Mm-hmm. That's something else I'd like to point out is how the way in which the violence is captured makes it even scarier because of how 
quick and fast the movements are once the once the violence mm-hmm. begins. Yeah. It's an impressive, incredible sequence. And once it's over, your, your whole body kind of just relaxes because yeah. you've been tense and you didn't yeah. you weren't aware of it, but at the same time, you don't really understand how the movie could top that sequence. And mm-hmm. yet they do find a way to. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. really do find a way yeah. to at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's an incredible sequence. And as, I, mm-hmm. and as I say, if it weren't a slasher film from the early 80s, it would be the most impressive yeah. thing in the movie. In this, it's like the second or third yeah, most impressive thing in the movie. <laughs> it really it's, yeah. it's an amazing yeah. piece of filmmaking. Um, this being your first time seeing it, it had to have been a shock to have a movie of this vintage have such an impressively well done murder set piece of oh, this yeah. type. It was. I mean, the whole the whole movie was just eye opening to me. I mean, I expected it to be good because yeah. I'd heard you talk about it so much, but I just wasn't uh, prepared by just what a delight the film is. You know, just yeah. visually and creatively. You know, and just the editing and and everything, and just uh, how assured the director's hand and the yeah. editor's hand is on this is just uh, was just uh, really blew me away. I was I was very impressed with it. And once again, we're not going to spoil this movie. No, no. Although That's, we want to so badly. <laughs> we want to talk about it so Yeah, so, so, so we noticed our mailbox is empty this time. So if you want to fill up our <laughs> mailbox with direct correspondences talk, so we can talk about the ending with you over <laughs> on mail that shall never be read aloud, we can uh, do that. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I will say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, once this episode has been out for a few months yeah. and we decide to, and if we get some mail in where yeah. people are talking about this yeah. movie, they've sat down and watched it and they want to yeah. have a discussion of the ending, mm. we'll do a spoiler-filled discussion go. of the final act of The Corruption of Chris Miller. The spoiling of Chris Miller. The spoiling of Chris Miller. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different film. Yes, it is very That's different. That's a very different film. That's a film I'd watch, too. Yes, I would, too. Too. I mean, you know. Cause oh, oh, in case we didn't point it out. Jean Seberg is a, an incredibly beautiful woman. Yes, she is. And Marisol is an incredibly, incredibly yes. beautiful woman. Yes. Uh, but it is Barry Letts who's new to them. <laughs> <laughs> Both women are, are, are yeah. in often fairly revealing outfits, mm-hmm. uh, including Marisol in a bikini at one point that is, it just makes you go... Barely there. Holy yeah. crap, there's yeah. almost no cloth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, also, she has a tendency to ride a horse without wearing a brassiere, so you know, if, you, oh, yeah, if that's your sort of thing, that, yeah. then you know. Yeah. How could I not think about that? How could you really, not? I that's, don't know. That's, 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 <laughs> something is wrong with me. Perhaps I have entered middle age. <laughs> I should be rocketing toward dirty, dirty old man territory at this I'm, point, right? Well, I am a middle aged dude, but I'm still, I've not thrown my raincoat away yet. So. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cruel and vicious thing, and it is probably true of both of us. Anyway, <laughs> folks, I think that's as far as we're going to take our discussion of this film because, once again, we do mm. not want to spoil mm. this for you. So, mm. I will just ask Troy. Mm. One to ten rating. What do you give this sucker? It's been quite a while since I've done this, but I had to give it a nine. You know, Ooh, I was I was like eight. Yeah. I was like eight, nine. I was like, well, but you know, it's like nine's awfully high. But I'm trying to think of how many negative <laughs> things I can say about it, and there's just not really much. I'm just like, I have to give it a nine on that. So yeah, yeah. I, I looked back at my original rating years ago when I first saw this, and mm. I gave it an eight. Uh-huh. This vi- this time yeah. around, yeah. I had to bump it to a nine myself. Okay, well, cool, cool. It's awesome. an incredibly well yeah. done movie. It is. It is. It's, I was just again, it just I was just totally. I was I was just so uh, engrossed by all the choices it made visually and pacing and and with the actors and script. I mean, it was just top notch for everybody all around. The time it took just to just introduce, you know, not just these great murder and and thriller set pieces we're talking about, but even the moments that would be considered the quiet moments or the 
just the scenes where Chris goes out riding her horse and, and, and just out in the countryside are just so incredibly well filmed and say so much with what they're doing too. Exactly. It's not just showing you beautiful countryside. The way what they, they're also showing you so much about the characters and the town they live in and the whole lives they live. Her whole feeling of the whole film is about the safety, relative safety, but psychological dangers of isolation. Right. Versus the intense freedom, but also physical dangers of venturing out into the the the, the, the real world, wide yeah. world. There. Well, I would like to point out that yes, you're right, and another amazing thing about the way this movie is directed is there are so many excellent shots. So much of the film takes place within that house. Mm-hmm. And you would think that no matter how beautiful those the house is, those sets and the way the place looks, there would come a point over the course of, an, of a movie that's, you know, nine minutes shy of two hours. Yeah. Where there would, there would be a point where you've seen a certain shot a multiple of times and... Therefore, you're kind of visually done with that. You're, you've seen it too many times. But what is very easy to see on a second viewing when you're paying attention to the mm. dynamics with, between the characters mm. is how often the choice of angle and shot, mm. for instance, how many different ways did Bardem find to shoot from the top of that staircase or from the bottom of that yeah, staircase yeah, right. at one character or another? Yeah. And in relation to, in, mm. in relation to each mm. other, for that to have a maximum impact hmm. on where those characters stand in relation to each other hmm. in the story <laughs> at that time. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because that was one of the few places where it actually kind of telegraphed what it was going to do. Because I did yeah, see it coming. Yeah, kind of does. Once, was like, once you've seen it, yeah, it's yeah. like this, this is the well. It's like the well, the, 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 the where the where the slap comes in. Yep. I was like, you know, this is back at this is back in the time when everybody slapped each other. You know, it's like it happened all the it time. It was the seventies. You just get slapped. And it's the one part of the film where the whole you were, way, sla- you were slapped when you were born. <laughs> you were slapped the rest of your fucking life. That's right? right. Now the the whole way there's a scene between Ruth and Chris. The whole way it's set up and framed. You just know. Here comes the slap, but I gotta say it's a hell of a slap. I mean, it yeah, looks really real. I don't know. I, if, I think it was. I think real. it might have been. I think the actor. I think the actors decided. Okay, we're gonna yeah. make, we're gonna have to do this real. It, yeah. Know? So so you may see it coming, but yeah, it's convincing. So anyway, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there, it's just that there are uh, one of the one of the things a smart director will do is choose the mm. choose the setup and yeah. the angle of mm-hmm. the shot mm-hmm. in a way that gives you an almost subliminal bit of detail mm. that adds to what's being told by either the dialogue, yeah. the characters, or the story mm. at the time. So you mm. structure and you you know you you block the, the, the actors in a certain way and mm. you set the camera in a, in a particular way to emphasize what is being done within the scene. And this film does it mm. so well. Yeah. You don't need, you don't have to the first time you watch it, you you will just notice its effects without mm. knowing without realizing what's going on. Yeah. But if you watch it a second or a third time, you begin to see Oh, he's very smartly put yeah. the camera above the actor whose mm. back is to us, so that we're looking down over this character's left shoulder at the other character on the floor beneath, yeah. which mirrors the relationship at that point. The yeah. looking down at a character and feeling, well, I'll just leave it at that. At yeah, that point in time. and 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 I'll say a cryptic thing here for people who haven't seen the film. Watch for the drumming bear. What it does with the drumming bear? Yes, that's, uh, that's <laughs> the, the little the little drumming bear. Fun, toy, yeah, the little yeah. drumming bear toy. It does really interesting things with that drummer drumming bear toy. So there's a, there, <sighs> they do really really interesting thing with the in in the in the relations of of uh, family dogs mm-hmm. and just yeah. and, and a couple of dogs. We mentioned mm. the dog at the beginning of the film. There's a, yeah. there's a dog that plays into. Uh, mm the massive murder set piece mm-hmm. uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in the middle of the movie as well. It's there, There's yeah. so much good in this movie. Yeah. Uh, also, 
I just realized we probably should make uh, people. Yes, yeah, I was just <sighs> thinking the same thing. Okay, here's yeah. an, here's one negative, but it's kind of a unfortunately it's kind of atypical of films, or, Especially or typical pe- of the films. It's, it's typical of the films yes. of this period. Yes, there is an animal death on screen. Yeah, it's um, not gory. No, it's not. It's not gory. There's no blood or, of any type. But uh, they do have a, uh, they do kill a rabbit on screen. Yeah, yeah. So, so you do should be warned about that. If you don't like that, when you see the rabbit come into play, you might just want to look away, look away, look away. You know, it doesn't last long. But, uh, but yeah, just sort of. And as a matter of fact, I I would have to say that even that animal's death is a point of of character interaction. Yeah, it is within the scene. I mean, it has it has it has a definite point. Mm -hmm. Well, it's one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who's passing the buck to who? Who's making who? Who's, who's playing who, making them do their bidding kind of thing. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's yeah. sort of a power play between, yeah. between two it's of the It's a power characters. play. It's a question of who's the victim in the scene. Yeah, right. Really, yeah. who's the victim in the scene? Yeah. 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 So interesting stuff. I'll say one more thing, too, about the uh, just alternate titles are kind of fun. There's only a couple, but uh, oh, yeah. if you happen to be in a video store in, in Germany and looking for this, <laughs> German title was Sisters of Corruption, which works. Yeah, but they're, not, but they're not. I mean, sisters. it sounds like a nun exploitation. That might yeah. have been trying to might have been trying yeah. to market it as nun exploitation. Maybe right. that's you know. Uh, the other one is uh, apparently a USA reissue called Beyond the Shutters. Now, yeah, that I, works. I, 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 mean, I saw that. I saw some. I saw some uh, yeah. newspaper ads for yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, beyond the be, uh, behind the shutters. Beyond beyond the shutters. Beyond the shutters. Because well, that that, that what plays happens into behind the, closed doors, the isolated. Well, well not just that, but I mean, you know, the, the shutters. There are that actually they, that they, literally that they yeah. shutters in the on the windows yeah. in this house that they close up every night before they go to bed. Mm-hmm. Which you know, which means this. I mean. Mm-hmm. It, I can see where they would get that title. Yeah, yeah. It's far less effective than the corruption of Chris Miller, yeah. I think. Although a lot of people may have wandered in, and that might have been used as a sexual. I mean, a lot of people thinking corruption might have wandered in to see this film, expecting you know, sec- more more, oh, more, uh, nudity, more sexy, more, time. more explicit. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so it might have been a little misleading, depending true. on. But true. I like the title personally, but you know, I think it fits certainly. That's but great. I mean, that's a great title. So uh, thumbs up. Yes, for both very of much us. so. Very much so. Please go see the corruption of Chris Miller. We think you will enjoy it. Yep. And uh, now we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. The ghosts are moving tonight, restless, hungry. All right, fellas, here's your story. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the B-Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B-movies from the 1950s with teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. So impress your friends with dinner and a movie with the B-Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing, just visit bmoviecookbook.com. Anybody around here want some coffee? Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? <laughs> Thank you. 
folks, uh, that'll wrap this episode up. We want to thank you once again for joining us on this Beyond Nashy episode. Beyond Nashy number 29. Did I say that at the beginning of the show? It's been so long since the beginning of the show, <laughs> I honestly couldn't tell you. <laughs> anyway, this was number 29, which, I mean, if you look at the name of the show, it's going to forget it now, folks. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, thank you once again for joining us, talking about this uh Lesser known, mm. but high quality yeah. Spanish horror film mm. or Spanish thriller. See what I mean? That's Yo, the thing uh, we're not yeah, talking yeah. about originally. Yeah. Is, mm. is it more a thriller than a horror mm. film? And I would mm. say it leans much more heavily toward the thriller, but man, yeah. does it have the horror elements. It Ooh, does. Doggy. Anyway, thanks once again for being here. Uh, we should let you know that we don't have a firm plan for what the next episode of the Nashi cast will be. We're tossing around a couple of ideas right now. We don't have a specific film that we want to lean heavily into. We've got a few more beyond Nashies, I'll tell you that. But the next episode will be a normal Nashi cast episode where the focus is back on Senior Nashi. But before then, mm-hmm. we've got a couple of things before the end of the year, but they will be in the Bloody Pit feed. Over on the Bloody Pit, our sister podcast, we're going to be doing a couple of things over the next couple of months. Um, besides a couple of other episodes that I'm working on currently, Troy and I, next month, we'll be talking about, well, we'll be, we'll be returning to our uh, 1940s Universal Horror thread of shows. Yeah, yeah. And talking about the Abbott and Costello film, Hold That Ghost. That's right. Which I'm very excited about because I'm now beginning to think that I don't know that I've seen it all mm. the way through. Mm. I had seen it before, but it had been years. So I've done one rewatch for it already, about to do another to, you know, kind of okay. get ready for the show. Uh, but it had been so many years since I'd forgotten, you know, most of it. But yeah. Uh, just the, mo- uh, the most recent Avin Costello that I've seen is uh, sat down and rewatched uh, Avin Costello Meet the Killer. That's yeah. uh, the Boris yeah. Karloff one. Yeah, yeah. Really enjoy that. Oh, it's I mean, a fun one. It's Car- a fun Karloff- one. Karloff's a blast, even though he's just a red herring, and I don't mind spoiling mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. it's a comedy, folks. <laughs> and a pretty damn funny one. It is a good one. It's a good little film. Yeah. Uh, so next month, over on the Bloody Pit, Hold That Ghost. And as you might be aware, if you've been paying any attention and really care, Every December, mm-hmm. Troy and I sit down with John Hudson, my antagonist mm-hmm. from the, uh, the, the <laughs> Margariti shows that we do on here. Right? Would I, should I call him antagonist? Your foil, I think, is the best. Foil, foil. foil. That's yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Foil. That's mm-hmm. a good choice. Uh-huh. Hudson will sit down with us again in December for our holiday horror episode this year. And uh, I love having that show at the end of the year because good I, don't have to, I don't have to worry about it. You guys are the ones that pick the movie. Mm. I come in, sit down, uh, watch it, and see what it is. This year, it's an obscure one, i got to say. I don't think any of us have seen it, actually. I don't believe it. I don't really? think even Hudson has seen it. I know I haven't, wow. but I don't know. Well, I know I, he I bought the Blu-ray, but of course, <coughs> like so many of us, he's bought the Blu-ray and it's still sitting there gathering dust waiting yeah. for a chance to watch it. Yeah, and I could be wrong. He could have seen it, but I, I don't believe he has. I definitely have not. Tell the good people what it is. Yes. David Hess's directorial... It's not his directorial debut, but uh, mm. David Hess's film... To All a Good Night. And uh, very curious about this one. Is mm. Hess in the movie? I don't think so. I don't believe he is. I could be wrong, but I think he just directed it, I okay. believe. But uh, yes, it's a Christmas horror film that we know really nothing about. Uh, but we're going to give it a shot and let you know what we think. I am really curious about it because mm-hmm. I love holiday horror. Oh, me too. Yeah. Cinema of all types. Mm-hmm. And a horror film that I know nothing about that's Mm -hmm. centered around that holiday. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious. I can't wait to see. If you want to watch it with us, um, we do know that the DVD and Blu-ray are available on Amazon. And also there is a version on YouTube that has Greek subtitles. So uh, that's one way to check (laughs) it out. So anyway, so yes, if you'd like to catch it it before. So it can be found. Yes, it can. Probably best to wait until after Halloween to start watching the Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. Even Mm -hmm. Even though they're horror movies. Yeah. 
we have to differentiate between mm. the various mm. holidays for mm. our holiday horrors. Yeah. When we say holiday horrors, we mean the end of the year stuff like Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, yeah. but we may branch out into Valentine's Day and things, you know. Like, is there that. a Hanukkah horror movie? There should be. There really ought to if be. There is a great really There really be. needs to be. Imagine like a, a <laughs> bunch of Hasidic Jews running from a crazy person with a chainsaw. That would be really weird. <laughs> That's just weirder the more I think about it. Yeah. Anyway, folks, next month, hold that ghost over on the bloody pit. The month after that, in December. To all a good night on the holiday horrors. On the holiday horrors. Oh, my goodness. Well, folks, once again, thank you for listening to us. We hope you, en- we hope you enjoy mm-hmm. the show. <laughs> oh I, wish my, I wish my head was He's singing, so oh, God. Song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's always a bad sign when I start singing. You know? <laughs> I've either imbibed too much caffeine or too much alcohol. And let me tell you, it's caffeine yes. this time. Folks, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. My name is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. Good night, all. Good night, all.